this is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with Mura, her autobiography, written by Mura Limpany with Margot Strickland and published in 1991 by Peter Owens. Chapter 5 War, the Colonel's Lady To gain for British artists the same prestige abroad as the best foreign artists enjoy in Britain. This, I was told, was my mission when I went to Rome in 1939. I played Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto to great praise from the Rome press. It soon became obvious to me that war was inevitable. My brother Tony was working in Antwerp in 1939 when the Germans invaded Belgium, and he managed to escape from Antwerp and across to Ostend to board one of the last boats to England. He was 19 and at once joined the Royal Air Force, becoming a fighter pilot. He adored flying, the excitement, the danger, the camaraderie of the other pilots. On one of his leaves he married an Austrian girl, an artist named Dita. Joseph was only 17 when war broke out. He joined up as soon as possible in the Buffs and eventually was attached to the 4th Division of the Indian Army 1st Lieutenant in the Royal Garhwal Rifles, known as the Garwalis. Three weeks before war was declared, I traveled to play at La Scala in Milan, my first performance there and a thrilling debut for me, despite warnings by friends that it was dangerous for me to go. They were unable to dissuade me, and I was very well received, but a tour of Germany arranged for November was cancelled. My mother had been living in Yelverton, Devon, a little-known wartime activity undertaken by Britons with a knowledge of languages was censoring overseas correspondence. This exacting occupation involved not only expert understanding of several languages, but the ability to decipher often illegible handwriting and to judge what information concerning the war contained in the correspondence should be deleted. Careless talk costs lives, was an official slogan of the time. Censorship offices were established at Liverpool, where my mother went to stay while engaged in this work. Her seven languages and knowledge of European countries were most useful. All concerts were cancelled on the outbreak of war, and at first I had no work. I wondered what on earth to do. From being one of the busiest concert pianists, constantly in demand, and traveling all over Europe, I was, as it were, grounded. The musical life of the country had come to a standstill. Choirs, music societies, and orchestras were disbanded. When the women's services were formed, I contemplated joining the ATS, the WAAF, or the WRNS, 
but it was soon decided that the morale of the people at home desperately needed boosting and with music. The Germans had described England as the land without music, but the Nazis had driven music out of their country. Schoenberg, Bruno Walter, Klemperer, and Schnabel had to leave, and hundreds of composers, conductors, and instrumentalists had left too. Handel's oratorios were Arianized, and the statue of Mendelssohn in Leipzig removed. Monsieur Edmond Jaminet, my bon papa, had a grandson who escaped from Belgium through Spain. When he reached the frontier, he was put under severe interrogation from the authorities. He decided to pretend to be a French-Canadian to explain away his accent, and when his name was demanded of him, he spoke the only English surname he knew, and that was mine, Johnston. But he came to grief when asked to spell it, and was held for a while. Later he was released and allowed to come to England where he joined the Royal Air Force. Music seems to be the one universal food that can take the place of all others at certain times, wrote Yehudi Menuhin. In music the hearer lives another existence apart from the doubts and worries of ordinary life. People must need to be in need of music before they can really appreciate it. And they did need music now. Myra Hess, the great lady of the piano, had a brilliant idea. The National Gallery had been stripped of its treasures, which had been stored in some secret safe place in the country, and was now completely vacant and available. She went to see Kenneth Clark, director of the National Gallery, and suggested to him that a concert once a week in the middle of London would be a great morale booster to Londoners. He was most enthusiastic, and thought the concerts should be not weekly, but daily. So they set about organizing concerts for crowds of workers and troops. The admission was one shilling. By the summer of 1942, they had become an institution, and although the official limit on numbers was 200, audiences were so clamorous that they often numbered over 2,000. The Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra were giving five times as many concerts as they had done before the war. The success of classical music in wartime England was unforeseen. Every Sunday there was a concert at the Cambridge Theatre arranged by Sidney Beer, a rich man with a passion for music and an unrealized ambition to be a conductor. Instead of spending his fortune on racehorses or a yacht, he spent it on creating an orchestra, the National Symphony Orchestra. It was a very brave venture because he was really an amateur in the true sense of the word. Beer engaged me for two of the Cambridge Theatre symphony concerts to play the third piano concerto by Rachmaninoff, a formidable work with more notes in it than any other piano concerto. The other work he wanted me to play was the Brahms concerto in B-flat. Both works are technically the most difficult in the piano repertoire. I knew it would take me all of nine months to learn the Rachmaninoff and six months to learn the Brahms. 
but I could not refuse such opportunities to master and play these great compositions, and Mr. Beer was happy to allow me the time to do so. They have since become among my most beloved and successful works. I was constantly being asked to play works I did not know, and which I had to learn at speed. This left me little time or inclination to learn works for which I did not have an engagement. I was renting a room at Paddington at this time, furnished with a few necessities and an upright piano, on which I did all my practice. The critics wrote that I played the Brahms like a man. They meant I had the strength of a man. My policy was never to refuse an engagement, even if I did not know the work. I relied on my ability to go out and buy the sheet music and learn it quickly. Edward Clark, of the Society for Cultural Relations with the USSR, unexpectedly got in touch with me early in 1940 with an unusual and exciting request. Would I play an unknown concerto by a Russian composer in a concert of Russian music? The conductor was to be the composer Alan Bush, whose own music was extremely popular in Russia. Bush was in demand, and Russian music was to be popularized. Relations with the USSR were now vital to the progress of the war. The concerto in question had first been offered to Clifford Curzon. Curzon, at the age of 17, had been a professor at the Royal Academy of Music before going to Berlin to study with Schnabel. He was one of the few male pianists Uncle Tobbs had taught. Curzon, now aged 47 and a successful virtuoso, had so much work he refused the Cacciatorian, suggesting that I be approached. More Olympini learned so quickly, Curzon assured Mr. Clark. So I agreed, asking that the work, which was still in manuscript, be given to me as soon as possible, for there was only one month in which to learn it. Clark asked me where he should bring it, and I told him I was going to the hairdresser's, and would he bring it to me there. He said he would do his best, and, as for a fee, I waved him away and said I would leave it to him and his committee to decide. To play the work was terribly important to me in my career. I was sitting under the hairdryer at the hairdresser's when into the salon burst Mr. Clark, carrying a large parcel. It was the manuscript of the Soviet-Armenian composer Kachaturian's Piano Concerto. "'You look Russian!' he exclaimed at my reflection in the salon mirror. I began to study it then and there while my hair was in curlers. I thought the Society for Cultural Relations with the USSR would probably offer me five guineas for this performance, so I was most surprised and grateful to be offered fifteen guineas, three times what I had expected. I learned this concerto for fifteen guineas, but it repaid me a thousandfold. The first performance, conducted by the composer Alan Bush, took place at the Queen's Hall in the spring of 1940. Miaskovsky's 16th Symphony and Shostakovich's 4th formed the remainder of the program, but the Kachaturian Concerto created a sensation, eclipsing the other works. Nothing like it had been heard before. It was new, it was modern, it had fantastic pace, it was a thrilling work, 
and somehow it suited the warlike mood of the nation and the time, challenging and riveting. Uncle Tobbs could not come to the Queen's Hall for the performance. Now aged eighty-three, he was too old and infirm. But the performance was broadcast, and he sent me a telegram the next day, which read simply, Best Concerto Since List. The critics were surprised by my performance. Mora Limpany's virtuosity was as unexpected as dazzling, and as agreeable to concert-goers in wartime London as a friendly firework in the blackout. I had thus added a most valuable and innovative work to my repertoire, which endorsed my reputation as a Russian interpreter. I was asked to play it everywhere I went, and to record it for Decca. The Soviet ambassador, Mr. Ivan Maisky, a stocky, smiling man, was ecstatic, not only because of the artistic success of the concerto, but because of the excellent cultural links which its popularity helped to forge. Maisky deluged me with enormous bouquets and almost equally large boxes of caviar, a luxury delicacy in wartime. I received invitations to innumerable embassy receptions. With my Russian Christian name and my mother's and aunt's background of having lived in Russia, it was assumed that I was Russian and that I specialized as a Russian interpreter. Later that same year, Ambassador Maisky was an honored guest at the Savage Club, which did not admit women. Mark Hamburg played the piano, and Perry Jones sang for him. In my country, Maisky told the assembled guests, artists have a vital place in the war effort. The Rachmaninoff and Kachaturian concerti really established me. The public and the media alike need to put artists into a pigeonhole. She's a Bach specialist. He's an Arthur Bliss interpreter, and so forth. I had played concerti by English composers, but I never played the Arthur Bliss concerto because Solomon was the leading exponent of that work. He was always asked to play it, and nobody else. I had become a Russian specialist, recording all the Rachmaninoff preludes, which not even the composer had done. That added to my reputation. Quite soon I was being asked to play the Prokofiev concerti, the first and the third, and having mastered these, I added the fourth, which is for the left hand, to my repertoire too. Then I was engaged to play a relatively simple work, the second piano concerto by Shostakovich. The conductor, Erich Kleiber, was a Beethoven specialist, how, I once asked him reverently, did you discover you had an affinity with Beethoven? Kleiber laughed. At the age of nineteen, he replied, I was conducting the Berlin Orchestra, and I used to give them Beethoven. The critics wrote that I was not mature enough to conduct Beethoven, but I took no notice and went on giving them Beethoven every Sunday, with the result that I am now acclaimed as a Beethoven specialist. Meanwhile, I played all over England, to the factory workers in Yorkshire, dock workers in Hull, and everywhere I was sent. This was a very strenuous time, and a most exhausting way of life, when there was little comfort and convenience for an artist traveling and working alone. 
petrol rationing meant that there were no taxis. I had not yet learned to drive, so had no car, and probably would not have been able to get the petrol to run one anyway. Trains were unheated, and there were not many of them. Buses likewise. One of the greatest problems was food rationing. I needed energy with which to play the piano like everyone else did for their war work, but I had no home life at 10 Orsett Terrace, Paddington, and was dependent on what I could buy whilst traveling. Often, like everyone else, I did not have enough to eat, and so became debilitated, and my already highly strung temperament caused me to become even more nervous. The migraines I had suffered from when I was younger recurred with a vengeance. The best treatment was to lie in a darkened room for several hours. I had little chance to do this. There simply was no time, and I just worked through them with a couple of aspirins. Concert halls and theaters were so cold and drafty, I sometimes played wearing a fur coat with mittens on my hands. Clothes, too, were rationed, and in order to maintain my concert appearances, I had several gowns made for me from furnishing materials, velvet and brocade, which one could purchase without clothes coupons. These were a great success. Eileen Joyce and I were contemporaries. She was an intensely beautiful pianist, and in her case, like mine, it was the nuns at the convent school in Australia who had fostered her talent. Eileen also liked to dress in glamorous gowns, and indeed changed her gown during the interval of a concert. The press tried quite hard to make us into rivals, and even to create a feud between us, and were surprised when neither of us would play the game. We were colleagues in the cause of good music, and respected each other's abilities. The great romantic piano concerti were the basis of our popularity, and resulted in several successful feature films, which popularized them even more. Love Story, with Stuart Granger and Margaret Lockwood as a concert pianist, in which she played the Cornish Rhapsody. The Seventh Veil, with Anne Todd and James Mason. And best of all, Dangerous Moonlight, in which Anton Walbrook played not only a famous Polish pianist, but one who was also a heroic pilot. This last featured the Warsaw Concerto, played by Louis Kentner, which was to become the most famous piece of music to emerge from the war, composed by Richard Adensel. Eileen Joyce, now married to a theatrical agent, had the good fortune to play Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto for Brief Encounter and Seventh Fail, while Harriet Cohen played the Cornish Rhapsody. Most serious pianists believed the popularity of Adensel's Warsaw Concerto was beneath them artistically, but time has proved them wrong. I had to go on. I had my living to earn. London during the time of the air raids was terrible. The nights were endless, with bombs dropping everywhere and crowds wrapped in blankets, sleeping in rows along the underground stations. The night that never ended was 10 May 1940. I had slept under my piano all night. The next morning, I was due to attend a rehearsal with orchestra at the Queen's Hall for César Franck's symphonic variations. 
I had never played this composition before, and it had already come to mean a great deal to me. I felt it was peculiarly mine in a way no other piece of music had been before. César Franck was a Belgian, born in Liège, where I had studied as a schoolgirl. Off I went through the streets to find, when I reached Langham Place, that the Queen's Hall had received a direct hit the night before. A stick of bombs had destroyed the whole block, including Augner's music publishing house. All that met my gaze next to All Souls Church, which had miraculously survived, was a ruin from which rose a thin plume of smoke, for the fire was still smoldering. In dismay I stood there helplessly, to be joined by the members of the orchestra and others. The distinctively semicircular building that had been the Queen's Hall meant so much to all of us. We had all played there since our student days. Standing crookedly among the ruins was a music stand bearing sheet music. Loveliest of Trees by Muriel Herbert The concert unrehearsed, took place at 2.30. The conductor, Maurice Miles, the orchestra, and I were lent the Duke's Hall at the Royal Academy of Music instead, so off we went to the Marlbone Road. I had had no cause to go there since my student days, and it seemed extraordinary how much had happened to me since. There were the boards hanging on the wall, bearing all the names of former students in the years they had attended the Academy. My name was listed four times. Maura Johnston, Ada Lewis Scholarship. Maura Johnston, Elizabeth Stokes Scholarship. Maura Johnston, Hine Gift for Composition. And Maura Johnston, Challen Gold Medal, all in gilded letters. About this time I sat for my portrait to the painter Geoffrey Watson. He planned a full-length study in oils. I wore a white dress for the sittings in his studio in Chelsea, my hair braided and coiled in a coronet round my head. The artist was a tall, thin man, dressed in sandals, open-neck shirt and crumpled corduroy trousers. The portrait was beautiful when it was finished and framed, and a friend took a photograph of the artist standing before it paintbrush in hand, I in my grave pose looking ethereal, sitting up on a dice, a strangely pre-Raphaelite composition. To the artists and my distress, a bomb fell in Chelsea and destroyed the portrait along with his studio. Later, Watson begged me to sit again for him. I was leaving for Australia in three days, but he was so insistent that I let him come to do a simple portrait sketch in red chalk while I was practicing my programs. At his request, I wore a concert dress. The war ground inexorably on. In 1939, I had met a charming man, Lieutenant Colonel Colin de Vries, who had survived the First World War in which he had flown in the Royal Flying Corps. He was a passionate amateur musician, a pianist, and attended all my concerts. He had been a great friend of Beno Moiseevich, who for two years had been his parents' guest in their London house. Colin had cherished the ambition to be a professional pianist himself, but when the First World War ended, he had studied for a degree in engineering, 
and had successfully launched his own business, manufacturing small parts for aircraft and Rolls-Royce. We became great friends. He was an ardent, courtly admirer and a wonderful host. After my concerts, he would arrange a reception for me with military efficiency. At these times, I would be on a high after my hard work, and then I would relax and greet all my friends and fans. These were most important occasions. I could not do it by myself then, and Colin enjoyed providing the background for me. Colin could see that the strain of years of work added to the perils of war were telling on me, and that I was nearly at the end of my tether. He told me I was terribly in need of someone to look after me. He proposed to me, and so I faced a difficult decision. I was not in love with him, and told him so, but this did not deter him. He was sixty years old, a tall man with a small military mustache. He seemed to me to be a heaven-sent bulwark against the difficulties of my life. He was patient while time passed, and I considered his proposal. He was so kind and helpful, and I grew to love him. He understood me perfectly, and my music too. "'Suppose I fall in love with a younger man?' I asked him. He winced, as if I had struck him by reminding him that he was thirty-two years older than I was. He replied gallantly that, of course, he would release me. "'You need a proper home,' he said, "'so you can give all your energies to your music instead of worrying about earning a living.' I knew this was true, and so I at last agreed to marry Colin. It was the usual sort of wartime wedding, a registry office ceremony, no bridal gown, for clothes coupons were required to buy every yard of material, no bridesmaids, only a few friends present, and no honeymoon. The one word Colin had spoken to me which had embedded itself in my consciousness was home. I hardly knew what that word meant. It sounded beautiful to me, and I clung to it while we set about finding somewhere to live. We house-hunted within commuting distance of London, and found a delightful house at Oxshot in Surrey near his business. The address was Whiteacre, Knott Park. Colin was a generous man, but not at all rich. He had his army pension and salary as managing director of his firm. The house at Oxshot was for sale at £4,000. It had a garden, and I had set my heart on it. Colin paid a deposit of a thousand pounds, but, because of his age, he could not borrow the rest. So I took out a life insurance policy, and borrowed the balance of three thousand pounds, and the house was ours. The title deed was in my name, as I had provided three-quarters of the purchase price. For the first time in my life, I had my own home. A real home. It was wonderful. I was very happy in a kind of father-daughter relationship. Colin had an excellent business brain and took care of all the paperwork concerning my concert engagements and the financial and accounting details, a quite heavy burden I was only too grateful to delegate. It was a great relief to me, and we partnered each other at the piano, having installed two pianos in the drawing room. Colin was at his office all day, and when he came home at 4.30, 
we would have a cup of tea together, talk over the day's events, and then practice from 5 to 6 p.m. He would play the orchestral accompaniments to my concertos, which was a great help to me. His advice was always good, too. Like Uncle Tobbs, it was benevolent, avuncular, and he came with me to all my concerts and made careful notes while I rehearsed, reading them to me afterwards. You should play louder in the Andante. You should play softer in the Adagio. You should play clearer in the repeat of the theme. You should play more expressively, more passionately in the cadenza. It was said that Colin pushed me too much, but this was neither true nor fair. He enjoyed the role of consort to a star of the concert platform and was wonderfully supportive and protective. Edgar Allan Poe, in his essay, The Philosophy of Composition, wrote, It is in the nature of a person of feeling to want to do everything by unbridled impulse, as it is in the nature of the intellectual to love to fill up a form. The real artist is a combination of the two. Cold intelligence and hot enthusiasm are two oddly matched steeds for the chariot of Phoebus, Apollo, but they must be taught to go in double harness, neither leading, but side by side, and mutually helpful. This is how Colin and I worked, our two pianos side by side, he playing the orchestral parts, and I the solo. Colin gave me the greatest help, and a home, a bass, where I could study quietly without worrying about the next bill to be paid. It was also said that musically I got on so well because my husband helped me so much. But my career was already established before I met Colin. It is true that I became emotionally and intellectually very dependent upon my husband. Colin DeFries was a forceful character and an authoritarian figure accustomed to command and to be obeyed. My own father had been absent from most of my childhood, and my mother had run everything, so Colin provided this significant role in my life and development. At home, I had never been so blissfully happy. I hated anything that took me away from that house at Oxshott. When I came back from being on tour, exhausted, Colin would make me stay in bed for 36 hours. I learned to cook and be a housewife, and I loved and tended my garden. On Sunday evenings, Colin and I were at home to friends and colleagues who came down from London, and I would play informally for them. Maurice Edelman, then a young political journalist on Picture Post, came to see us at this time and wrote a feature about me. The word attack is used to describe certain aspects of a musician's style, it is the quality which even the best women performers lack. But in every human activity there appears at some time a gifted woman who shows herself the equal of men in the vigor of her technique. Lang Len as a tennis player and Earhart as a flyer are two examples of women who have learnt and applied the mechanics of their art like men. In the same way, Maura Limpany has an attack which equals that of any male pianist. Watch her at a concert, waiting to begin a cadenza at the end of an orchestral passage. She is poised, her hands raised, her eyes on the conductor, 
she is counting, and yet she is absorbed in the wave of sound, remote from the tense audience, remote from the draughty wings, remote from everything but the music of which she is part. She waits, and then, with the exact timing of an athlete or a cat, she pounces on to the note. Her technique is as sparse, as appropriate, and as satisfying as the notes of a Bach fugue. I remember playing at the Royal Albert Hall one afternoon. There were no evening concerts on account of the blackout, and afterwards changing into a pair of trousers and going straight out to do some gardening. Round the back of the house I had wired in a patch to make a chicken run, where six chickens scratched about, all rushing to the wire-netted door and clucking a greeting, while my dog Jock barked at my heels and my tabby cat purred and prowled round my ankles under the apple tree. I had four ducks, too, which roamed free in the copse at the end of the garden. I was a real home bird. We were allowed only one egg per month on our ration books, and so the fresh eggs from our hens and ducks were most useful. Protein is the energy-giving food, and so when I went into the provinces to play, I would take a couple of eggs with me and swallow them raw. Colin used to say that when I was nervous and ruffled, all I needed was feeding, and then I would be all right. I was so happy in my little world at Oxshot. The only thing missing that I longed for was a child. All my girlfriends knew I was longing to have a baby, and Colin knew this too. Colin, benevolent in everything else, was on this subject implacable. Any woman can have a baby, he said sternly, but nobody can play the piano like you. Colin made all the decisions in our life, so I gave up hope of ever having a child. Colin was a very good gardener, and I learned a lot from him. In his masterful way, he would direct operations. Everything was carefully planned. He also taught me punctuality, terribly important for an artist who must arrive at a strange town and then an unknown concert venue, all prepared to give of her best at the piano. As in everything else, he figured out a system for me thus. You work out first how long it will take you to get to your appointment, always allowing the maximum time, then you add the time it takes you to dress, and you start accordingly. After mastering this, I never found it hard to be on time. The novelist and historian Peter Vansittart met Colin at this time. Colin was a keen tennis and squash player and belonged to the Hampstead Squash Club where Vansittart was a member. If I was away for a couple of days playing in the provinces, Colin would go and play an evening squash. Vansittart was then in his late twenties and Colin talked about me to him, giving him the impression that I was meek and retiring. I suppose I was. All I cared about was my music and my husband and our home. Despite the war, ordinary social life at home still went on. Jumble sales, coffee mornings, in aid of good causes, usually connected with the war effort, were plentiful in Surrey, and I tried never to refuse any request to play. When a Mrs. Wynne of Escher asked me to give a recital in aid of something, I forget what, I agreed, not realizing she was the mother of Godfrey Wynne, the 
popular journalist than a naval officer away at sea. Afterwards she told him, Miss Limpany not only played beautifully, but she seemed to enjoy herself so much, one felt at the time she was taking as much trouble for us as though it was a packed Albert Hall. To me that is always the test of the star performer. I recall recording the Mendelssohn Piano Concerto in G minor under Kubelik, supervised for EMI by Walter Legge. The sun was shining outside, I remember. Legge had a vision, a wonderful vision. He was so sensitive. When I began to play, I could see the expression on his face. I knew something was wrong. I played on, and then he stopped me and confronted me. It's dreadful, Mora, he exclaimed. You're playing like a schoolgirl. I was dismayed. The Mendelssohn Concerto was, of course, the one with which I had made my debut at Harrogate when I was twelve years old. What shall I do? I asked Walter. Go home, he advised, and spend the whole weekend thinking about it. It's got to be full of fire. After we had recorded it to his satisfaction, he took me aside. Mora, I want you to record the Debussy preludes. I would not listen. My confidence in myself was at such a low ebb. Oh, but Walter, I protested weakly, Gies King has done them so beautifully. I simply couldn't play them as well as he does. Mora, Walter began again patiently, I want you to record the Chopin fantasy. Again I demurred. Oh, but Walter, I wailed, Courtauld has done it so beautifully. I simply couldn't play it as beautifully as he does. Years were to pass before I took his advice. Then I was to record Litolf's famous scherzo for HMV, which Walter Legge was supervising. After I had played this quick, brilliant short work, giving it all I had, Legge said to me, Mura, could you play it again a bit faster? Faster? I echoed, breathless and amazed. Faster? I tried for Walter to do just that, and he was satisfied. And that is the record which was passed. My younger brother Joseph had been promoted to the rank of acting captain. Early in 1944, I had an engagement to play the John Ireland Piano Concerto at Bristol. It was rare for either of my brother's leaves to coincide geographically or any other way with my concerts, so they had not often seen me play. On this occasion, however, Joseph had embarkation leave, which sounded rather ominous. He was determined by hook or by crook to get down to Bristol to see me and hitchhiked all the way. Bristol was a city of importance in our family history. Our grandfather, Dr. John Salcombe Johnston had retired there after selling the family estate at Sandhurst, Gloucester, but he had still continued to practice medicine. Although I never saw the house, I heard about it from my father. It was at Tyne Path, Redland Road, a corner house with a passiflora climbing round the front door and a mouth tube for patients to announce their presence to the receptionist. Our aunts had gone to school at the local convent, and two had become nuns. Sister Mary Bede of the Poor Child Jesus, a Dutch order founded at Simpelveld at St. Michael's Convent, North Finchley. 
and Sister Mary John at the convent of Our Lady, Southam in Warwickshire. It was in Bristol that our grandparents had died and were buried. Joseph knew he would at any moment be posted to Italy with his regiment. The John Ireland Concerto is a supremely English work. There is a beautiful melody at the beginning of the second movement, and when my darling brother came to see me after the concert, there were tears in his eyes. "'You played as if you were crying,' he said, "'and I cried too.' The remembrance of that concert in Bristol is inextricably linked with my last memory of my beloved brother. Joseph was twenty-two, a beautiful young man, handsome, idealistic, deeply religious. Some of his fellow officers were cynical and jeered at him because he always attended Mass on Sundays and loved to listen to my records instead of boozing in the Mass. In Italy, on one of his leaves, he went to stay at the Palazzo Catani with the Prince and Princess Catani de Bassiano, who had been my friends after my first concert in Rome. Their only son, a charming boy, had been drafted for military service in the Italian war against Ethiopia and been killed. They were still desolate from the dreadful blow and welcomed my brother as a son. Once, when Joseph was on a reconnaissance on a remote Italian mountain with two of his fellow officers, Cliff and Sandy, the three young men were very depressed, being far from home with an uncertain future and outnumbered by enemy forces. Suddenly Joseph began to sing Gunod's Ave Maria, and when he had finished, Cliff followed it with Blue Champagne, and they cheered up. At the Battle of Rimini, the Allied forces suffered the terrible losses, as did the Germans and Italians, and the British decided to ask for a temporary truce so they could bury their thousands of dead. Someone had to be found to walk across the no-man's-land stretch of ground between the armies, someone who would carry aloft the white flag that signaled a peace overture, and also speak German to negotiate with the enemy. Joseph volunteered. His men watched as he strode over the hill, holding the white flag aloft, though limp in the sweltering Italian glare. It seemed a long way, and every step he took he feared might be his last. His men thought he would be shot down at any moment. Eventually they saw him return, exhausted, drawn, but having completed his mission. A twenty-four-hour truce had been arranged and agreed. There was a much-needed respite for them all. But after the truce, the fighting began again. The thunder of the guns was relentless, and in an ambush, my brother Joseph was killed. He had given my name and address as next of kin. In the autumn of 1944, a telegram arrived for me, marked Priority OHMS on the yellow envelope. Deeply regret to inform you of report received from Central Mediterranean area that Captain C. J. Johnston Buff's attached Indian Army was killed in action on 23rd October 1944. Stop. The Army Council desire to offer you their sincere sympathy. Stop. Under Secretary of State for War. I was distraught and inconsolable, but my husband Colin did his best to comfort me. 
Worse was to come, for we had to go to Devon to break the news to my mother. Joseph had been her favorite son, her little darling ewe lamb, and she was now aged sixty-four. How we got through that terrible time I shall never know. My mother never recovered from the shock of her son's death. Tony, too, had adored Joseph, in an unusual way for an elder brother. Joseph had that quality of character so rare, his men idolized him. He always cared for them, and saw they were fed and comfortable before he was, as a good officer should. Tony, reckless, feckless, happy-go-lucky, survived the war unscathed, but he resolved that at some time in the future he would make a pilgrimage to our brother's grave at Rimini. You've been listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. If you like what you hear and want to support my creative endeavors, then simply go to ko-fi.com slash Penny Johnson and you can buy me a lemonade. That's ko-fi slash Penny Johnson. Thanks for your support.